Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Uh, we are back on Conspiracy Normal. Uh, been like a month hiatus. Had our uh, nice little uh, inter- uh, double show where we had Micah Hanks talking about donuts and trees. And uh, then we had uh, Mr. Gerard Williams all the way from France. And Bobby got to sit in on that one mm-hmm. about Hitler uh, living and dying in Argentina at the end of World War II. And uh, tonight we have a very special guest coming on for the third time. And that's Mr. Chris White. And uh, Chris, you still hold the record for the most conspiracy normal shows ever downloaded. I think you're up to about seventy thousand by now. So congratulations. All right, I'm sure most. I'm being, I'm, it's more probably like two thousand. You know. But. Yeah. Well, I'm sure the ancient aliens one is uh, is uh, all some, everything with ancient aliens on it automatically gets a lot of hits. It's just the way it goes. Right. Exactly. I'll just put that in the tagline for this one. So. Welcome back for the third time with Conspiracy Normal, Chris. Oh, man, it's good to be here. It's good to be on the show. Uh, this is a one, one show I just really like doing. It's uh, kind of like just sitting around with a bunch of friends. So uh, it's a laid-back kind of atmosphere, and you never know where it's going to go. Yeah, yeah sir. awesome to have you. Especially, yeah, especially with Bobby here now. It's like, you know, we never know what's going to happen. He's pretty unpredictable. <laughs> so, hey, well, let me ask so, you, what, what, did you, what was your conclusions about the Hitler and Argentina thing? I've never really looked into that. What, what, where's, what's the uh, consensus? 
Well, we had a guy named, like, our last show that we did was a guy named Gerard Williams, and he wrote a book called uh, Grey Wolf that uh, talks about um, Hitler escaping Argentina, uh, escaping Germany at the end of World War II on a U-boat yeah. and going to Argentina. And it, it, I also got the chance to watch the movie, and it seems like a pretty plausible um pretty possible idea that 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 possibly could have happened and he postulates that hitler uh was kind of uh sidelined by the nazis by like martin borman who was also there by the nazi leadership and uh was just pretty much a figurehead and he just got died kind of pathetic and alone in 1962 in argentina Hmm. yeah i know i've I've heard some things about it and it seems plausible it seemed like uh, something that could happen uh so you know up in the air, I guess I'd like to hear that st- that side and both sides of the story, but it sounds sounds plausible to me. Right, and there was uh, I, I put a, a something on there like a sound clip from a uh, British um, reporter that was embedded in with the Soviets in 1945, and saying that they had gone, they stormed into the into the uh, bunker, into the Fuhrer bunker. And they were saying that the Soviets were saying that it was not Hitler's body that they found, but it was an imposter or like a, one of the uh, doubles that he had. And this got this this was actually came out onto like I guess like the BBC airwaves. So that kind of reminded me a little bit of like uh, you know 9/11 and all these events where you get like what's really going on, and then kind of things get sanitized later on. Yeah, no, that makes sense. But uh, we got you on tonight. Uh, Want to talk about sleep paralysis? And uh, we've had uh, Tom Bionic on the show before talking about it. Uh, he's been on uh, like three times as well. And uh, Luke is like perusing my Planet of the Apes DVDs right now. <laughs> and uh, so I wanted to get him, get you on to talk about it because you're like the main focus, the main force of that of that ministry that you're doing with sleep paralysis. And uh, this goes into a lot of things that we talk about on this show, like um, alien abduction and uh, you know, sleep paralysis has kind of come up a lot on this show. So I wanted to get to your ideas, your opinions on sleep paralysis. But I guess I really want to start with, you know, what is sleep paralysis and how did you actually come to start studying it? Sure, and uh, I do. Up, I, I do yeah. think it connects a lot with uh, you know the paranormal topics and stuff. Not just alien abductions, but stuff like OBEs and astral projection, and it really it, a whole lot of uh, intersection. I think in a lot of uh, things that are considered paranormal, the shadow people, and you know we can go on and on. There's lots of different uh, intersections within uh, the occult uh, um, stuff too. But uh, what sleep paralysis is, um, is defined basically as um, when a person, a sleeping person, wakes up and can't move, and that, that explains the paralysis part of it. But that's not all it is. If you look it up, the, it is almost always accompanied by what scientists call a feeling of felt presence. And that's not just any presence, it is an evil presence. It's even defined that way in the uh, medical literature. So this uh, menacing presence is in the room, and, and sometimes it could be as simple as that, a feeling of a presence, but uh, very often it is also um, interaction with that presence, whether that be a physical attack by the presence, sexual attack by the presence, 
or any number of, uh, of other things. It is sometimes accompanied by things like out-of-body experiences and uh, a number of other things. The, um, the mainstream medical view of it, I don't know if this is a separate question or if I should just go into it, um, but uh, they, they basically see this. It, it's important to remember that the scientific view of this is unknown. They don't have, they don't know the reason why any aspect of sleep paralysis happens. That is uh, sometimes hard to believe for people that have looked into sleep paralysis because they're quite sure that uh, the scientists have it all figured out. But if you read the medical literature, they'll tell you flat out that they don't know what the cause of the, even the initial sleep paralysis and let alone uh, the so-called hallucinations that occurred during sleep paralysis. That is something they just don't have a, a, an answer for. They do have theories, and their theory uh, for the paralysis is essentially um, that there is a, a unnatural overlap between REM sleep and the waking state. Essentially, your body is waking up in a paralyzed state, a naturally paralyzed state because our bodies uh, exhibit certain uh, hormones and things like that that, that keep us from moving during our sleep. Uh, to protect us from uh, uh, acting out our dreams and so on. But, um, and, and so essentially that, that would explain the paralysis. And I don't really have a problem with that part of their uh, uh, theory. I think that uh, this could be, uh, that could be accepted. The, the theory, though, about why people see, hear, feel, experience all the things that they do during this state, however, is, um, is very problematic from their perspective. What they say is that a person, when they wake up in this state, they uh, experience felt presence. Now, I'm using the scientific word or phrase that they use, felt presence, in the literature. And they say that it's this, quote, unquote, felt presence that causes all the hallucinations in their, in their view. So, in other words, the felt presence is a guaranteed thing that will happen every time. It has to, in their view, because it's this, because what they'll say is that this presence uh, scares a person, and it makes the person basically uh, construct a whole lot of stuff in their mind, whether it's attacks or sexual attacks or the whole gamut of the things that happened. But the question is, okay, if the felt presence is what is causing the hallucinations, what is causing the felt presence? And that is a very difficult question. They, so how would you differ... From well, they're basically the, the, saying that a hallucination, felt presence, is causing the other hallucinations. Right. So they, when they try, when answering the question of well, what causes the primary factor here? What causes felt presence? They will say that it is essentially um, your body. Uh, they use the term threat-activated vigilance system. This is a, a part of our natural construct that. Uh, that uh, basically teaches us whether to, to uh, fight or, or fly. Now, if you're in the woods and you hear a noise, your threat-activated vigilance system will be activated, and you will determine And what, what the basic idea is, that you need to stop after the noise happens, and you need to determine whether that noise is a threat or not. Yeah. And so what they're saying is that when a person wakes up and is paralyzed, their threat-activated vigilance system is activated. And because there is no real threat, our, their brains malfunction and create a threat 
that being felt presence. And then the felt presence goes on to cause other, all the other hallucinations. Now, this theory is really, really, really flimsy. I mean, it is just a theory that they put out because they had to put something out. Um, the, re the way that they came to this theory about sleep paralysis was that uh, they did studies uh, with people uh, having sleep paralysis, and they uh, did MRIs and different brain scanning techniques and so on, to, and they noticed that the amygdala, the part of the brain called the amygdala, uh, where the threat-activated vigilant system, and really the fear center of your brain, among other things, is in the amygdala. And they noticed that the amygdala was activated. <laughs> So they, had, they hypothesized that the amygdala was malfunctioning. The fear center was malfunctioning, thereby causing the hallucinations. That is essentially the base of their theory. Now, the problem with that is that the, the, the elephant in the room, as it were, is that it would, the fear center of the brain would be activated in anybody experiencing anything in sleep paralysis because it's almost always intensely scary. It's, it's always an evil presence and it's always menacing, it's always doing something. Fear is an integral part of sleep paralysis. So it's never a positive experience. Right, so, so yeah, well I mean I would say that, uh, that there are cases of positive experiences but it's a, it's a very rare phenomenon. Um, the, but the issue is that um, so wouldn't the amygdala, the fear center of the brain, be activated if the person was genuinely scared because of the felt presence? In other words, they need to, to confirm their theory, they absolutely require that the, the if you will, the, um, the fear needs to come before the felt presence, not the felt mm -hmm. presence before the fear. Now, there is absolutely no way that they can test that, and I actually quoted in the book one of the top scientists in sleep paralysis that's out there in this paper where he's struggling with this uh, conclusion about how it's basically impossible to know or test, they said it's basically, uh, I can't remember the exact quote, but it's ultimately like uh, we can't, it's doubtful that any, anybody will ever figure this out because the people are mute and incapacitated and you know, can't tell you which is coming first. So they basically, there, there's no good reason to believe the scientific view that the brain is malfunctioning, the amygdala is malfunctioning, and thereby creating the felt presence. It's uh, just as likely to assume that whatever it is, is fearful, obviously, and then thereby causing fear, thereby causing the amygdala to activate. So the whole, the whole theory that, that the scientific community has about uh, sleep paralysis, in my view, is, is a house of cards when you really get down to it. In addition, there are so many things that refute uh, their theory. For example, many people are woken up in sleep paralysis by what they would call a hallucination. For example, a slap in the face or uh, something that actually wakes them up from sleep, then, then they wake up into an experience where they're being attacked or whatever by one of these entities. And the, the, the problem with that is, obviously, that person didn't have the opportunity to go through the cycle of, you know, waking up, noticing that they couldn't move, then their threat-activated vigilance system activates and they have fear, then they have uh, felt presence and they have hallucinations. They just started out with a hallucination, you know. So, and I've actually had that happen. I've had a sleep paralysis about three times in my life, and one of the times was exactly that. Uh, so, so the whole theory is, is based on a house of cards in that respect. Um, but people still. I'd like to talk, Chris, maybe about sure. like why 
that could have happened to you later on. Yeah, definitely. Absolutely. I think it's an important uh, uh, thing to, to, to talk about, uh, about why people have it, the different things, reasons that they can have it. Um, and <coughs> the other issue, I guess, is uh, that, you know, to further define sleep paralysis really quick, is that what people experience is all over the board. Um, they, in, in times past, it was things like, you know, uh, fairies or uh, other kinds of just gnarly beans and different things. And they, they sure. can and certainly do appear that way. But the, the bottom line is they appear as just about anything that they want. Um, a lot of times people describe hooded figures or the, the quintessential old hag. Uh, there are things that are more common than others, I guess you could say. But uh, they appear as just about anything. They, uh, dead relatives, aliens, um, uh, you know, all kinds of different beings. Sometimes they talk to people, have long conversations, and uh, in those cases, they're all, always saying and doing something um, really smart, but uh, really deceptive. And uh, and I could go on, and perhaps we will later in a different question or whatever, about why, uh, you know, the, the theory that I take, of course, is that this is demonic in nature. And I think that that hypothesis is something that has merit even in a logical, scientific uh, way, mo mostly through the study of anthropology, uh, as well as the fact that it, if you uh, treat this problem as a spiritual problem, it goes away. And I think that that is something that the scientific community, regardless of their anti-supernatural bias, needs to deal with. If they say that there is no cure for sleep paralysis, that's the official position of the medical community. They can drug you, they can do all kinds of stuff, but, they're, but they'll tell you it's not going to cure it. They don't know and they don't uh, say that there is a cure. Yet at StopSleepParalysis.org and other people that are doing similar things, we've seen hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people who are having sleep paralysis never have sleep paralysis again. Uh, so the question is, if it has a spiritual solution, you, the scientific community needs to, to look at that. And if, the, if one person would say, well, maybe this is just because somebody is calling upon, you know, a higher power, something that they perceive in their mind as good, uh, if that was true, then there would be a huge amount of people that, uh, that have ended sleep paralysis or stopped sleep paralysis in their life. And the scientists would simply say, we have noticed that people doing this can stop sleep paralysis, so there is a cure, basically. But we don't see that. It is a very particular uh, type of thing, particularly that you, uh, a person using the name and authority of Jesus Christ that is actually what is stopping these attacks and stopping them for good in a particular way that I'm sure we'll discuss it at, at some point. So I want to talk about, and to make an observation here, um, you know, I've heard sleep paralysis as described also as um, your body goes into sleep paralysis because you don't want to lash out in your sleep, basically. If you're having a nightmare or some kind of bad dream, you can lash out in your sleep. And so your body actually protects itself by going into this paralysis state. Right. Yeah. Uh, Go ahead. And also, at the same time, I want to explore kind of the relationship between sleep paralysis and out-of-body experiences. Okay. Well... 
first of all, I think I totally agree with the idea that, um, you know, the bodies are, are incapacitated. And I, I believe that when a person wakes up in this particular way in REM uh, sleep, they will be incapacitated. I, d- right. I don't suggest that, um, and I've, I've wrestled with this to sort of figure out what exactly was happening, whether or not uh, a person, uh, uh, e- e- essentially the, the demonic presence is causing somebody to be unable to move, thereby sort of uh, uh, looking negatively at the scientific explanation of the reason for the actual paralysis. But I don't see any reason to disregard that. I, I, would, I would view this more or less like... Um, demonic beings essentially capitalizing on a type of thing that they can do in terms of if they, if they know that they can wake a person up in a particular way in which they will be incapacitated, then it's all the more beneficial for them uh, because, you know, Satan, you know, biblically and otherwise, is, uh, is, waits to a person's weakest possible moment to, to attack them, even in a, in a very general sense. So sure. it, it seems advantageous more than anything on their part rather than a function like the, that itself being a function of the demonic presence in the room. Though I would, you know, entertain that possibility if there was any evidence to suggest it. What do you feel like the major purpose of basically, um, you know, demonic possession, like, like of taking somebody? I mean, I have somebody that's, that's close to me that went through a time where um, one night, and I was actually sleeping in the room, and I won't go into incredible detail, but woke up, and they couldn't move. And they were at a turning point in their life where there's a lot of a lot of things going on, a lot of thoughts in their mind, and, uh, you know, a lot, just basically a lot on their plate. And But anyways, um, I, you know, basically prayed over them. I'm a Christian. Um... And it went away. And that's not the first time that that's happened, um, in a sense. And it kind of freaked him out. And, you know, it was just it's just kind of like one of those weird things. Like, well, I don't know what to do. You know, let's pray. You know, and and, and it went away. So I think there's, there's definitely something to be said about it. Um, whether or not that person was opening up doors at that time or or what was going on. You know, it's... it's kind of an interesting thing right so it's to recap your question in part it is what is the demonic motivation for sleep paralysis right okay uh well i think that there is um i I think to answer this question we'll have to go a little bit of a roundabout kind of thing um i do think that uh everybody uh basically has what i describe in the book as kind of a, a a a natural protection against demonic entities they can't by default attack anybody we have a natural protection that can be eroded uh, due to our free will, essentially. And uh, as you mentioned, the, the kind of idea of opening doors. Um, God says in the Bible, he, he makes a lot of prohibitions uh, in the Bible. And I think that we tend to look at a lot of God's prohibitions as, you know, him sort of arbitrarily coming up with rules and things that we shouldn't do. When in fact, I think it's because he made everything, he knows how everything works. And he knows that if we do certain things, it will be uh, dangerous to us. He knows that Satan is walking or is roaming around like a roaring lion looking to devour who he can. And so, so his uh, prohibitions against things like occult practices, which is very thorough in, in saying don't do these things, and the reason he says not to is because they will, quote, defile you. 
so there's a, a type of whatever whatever that means, a defiling that can happen as we engage in, in different kinds of occult practices and other things. The Bible talks about other issues that I'm sure we'll get into. But um, so essentially, I, w- I would look at it like this. On one hand, if you erode that natural spiritual protection, and, and let's say it was happening by degrees, a very slow kind of a person sort of, you know, they're not doing, they're not out there sacrificing, you know, babies or anything, but they're they're just kind of progressing slowly, doing things that are opening up doors. As that as the cracks start to develop in that spiritual protection, we usually see it paralysis develop uh, rather slowly at first. So, for example, they'll be paralyzed and they can sense a presence in the room. Maybe they just see kind of a shadow, uh, even before the shadow. It's just it's just a feeling that something's there and something's evil and something that it wants to get them. But as, it, as they develop and, and start to erode that protection even more, it's like this, this lion on the outside of the cage that's hungry that would just want to get to you. So the basic idea, I guess, in answer to the question is that demons basically just really, 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 really hate us. And their the reasons for that, I, I'm not sure what the, what's motivating that hate, but the, the, the main issue is that if they get an opportunity, they will take it. Uh, the Bible says, "Don't give an opportunity to the devil," uh, 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 and I think that that is that's part of part of it is that we're by by opening up those cracks, they have an opportunity to do what they would want to do anyway. Now that that protection is is laxed. Now there is a different and, and several other kinds of demonic motivation that that get into more about um, some of the things that they do during sleep paralysis. For example. Uh, a lot of times there's this kind of almost evangelistic kind of convincing thing that happens in sleep paralysis when it's when it's severe enough to where the demon is is there taking whatever form it's taking and talking to them uh in in a lot of cases we've seen just these brilliant schemes basically to get the the people to usually have some measure of pride in what they're doing and that is to say tell them they're very very special tell them that they're you know one of the i don't know chosen ones to do something special and that basically to keep that person on the track that they're on uh that is opening up doors rapidly because that is beneficial for demonic beings uh in several ways so that when we get into the their motive for getting us to open up doors we have a whole nother reason of uh, about what their reasons for doing that but in terms of just the attacks um, they're going to they're going to take any opportunity that we give them, so that's why it's important not to to open the doors. Chris, I want to uh, talk about the relationship between OBEs and sleep paralysis, because we have. I want to talk about two of my friends tonight that have had these kind of experiences, and the first he has been having out of body experiences for years and years and years. And he stands by them, okay? This guy has been on the show. He says that he sees his guardian angel. Uh, I'm not going to mention any names, God, so don't say who it is. God knows who it is. But, uh, you know, he tells me, when I told him about you guys' ministry, yours and Tom Bionic's ministry, about stopping sleep paralysis, his reaction to me was, why would you want to stop that? Right. And it was a very strange reaction to me. He doesn't understand where I come from on that. So I think that we need to kind of explore that 
um, relationship between out-of-body experiences and the sleep paralysis phenomenon because they're not always put together in many different fields. And you guys' ministry has put those two together as basically the same phenomenon. Right. Well, that's a really good question, and it's a very in-depth question. So, so ask me any follow-ups to this because there's so many different aspects right. to it. Um, so when people – one of the, his reactions to, to why would you want to stop sleep paralysis is probably rooted in when you go look into people that are really, really into uh, inducing out-of-body experiences. There's a whole cottage industry of how to cause out-of-body experiences. And yeah. one of the major ways that they tell people to do that is if you're having sleep paralysis, then you can, you know, they've got a system for sort of when you're in the state of sleep paralysis, it, because it's easier to go out of your body during that uh, time, then you should accept and enjoy sleep paralysis because it's an opportunity for you to get out of your body. Now, by the way, if you read through even these supposedly wonderful experiences of out-of-body experiences, people that are trying to promote them as wonderful and just joyous and everything, you can even get hints in the people that are trying their best to make it sound good that there is something evil lurking really, really close to them. And there is an, you know, read a bunch of stories about OBEs and you're going to see a consistent theme lurking in the background. That, and then there was this really evil thing and he said something very evil to me. But anyway, I kept flying, you know, or whatever. So anyway, the point is, on that point, there is a connection. Uh, some people that certainly don't try to have out-of-body experiences do have them during uh, sleep paralysis and that is relatively common. Um, it does, certainly doesn't happen every time, but it, but it can. Um, when you look into, if, let's say, look at it at another angle. If somebody is trying to, they really want to have an OBE, and they go through a method that perhaps, uh, you know, look online or whatever, and there's all kinds of different things that are supposed to induce them. But if you look closely at the methods that they're using, basically they're all just ever so slightly um, in, in terms of they're, they're manipulating the person's free will to sort of ask for it in a way. There's this long, there's a lot of different things. But what's interesting is that the people that are trying to, you know, give these methodologies of how to, to uh, get uh, um, out-of-body experiences will tell you, now you're going to get sleep paralysis. Um, you know, essentially the things that they're telling the per person to do to get to an OBE will inevitably cause sleep paralysis way more than it's ever going to cause an OBE. So there's something about their methodology that's essentially opening doors. And usually, and there's a bunch of methodologies, but you can analyze each one of these methodologies and see that they're essentially, you know, uh, they can be very, very uh, uh, dangerous in themselves. Um, but, okay, so why does it happen? And this is a question that, honestly, I'm not 100% sure about, but I can say that a few things about it. In the Bible, we see evidences of, of people leaving their bodies um, that in a good sense. Uh, Paul, uh, he, I can't remember exactly where it is, but he says something to the effect of, you know, I, I was called up to the throne, of, throne room of God. Whether I was in the body or out of the body, I don't know. Uh, only God knows. And, you know, he says, he says essentially the same thing. But John, in the book of Revelation, makes it even more clear that he is actually uh, taken up in the spirit to the throne of God in, in a, a non-bodily thing. His body remained where it was, but his spirit went there. And an interesting thing about both of those passages where we essentially see somebody perhaps leaving their body, in the case of Paul and definitely in John, 
an angel is the one who facilitates that, uh, that, that transference, a good angel in this case. So in the Bible, this doesn't happen. Nobody, nobody leaves their body unless there is an angelic being essentially facilitating that. And so I guess my hypothesis in this is that it works both ways. Then when you're dealing with demonic uh, beings, they have something about their presence or something that they can do can cause that either by just the nature of them being close or by something that they're doing. I'm not sure. But the interesting thing about this, and Russ Dizdar has, uh, has done a lot about this, um, uh, Satanists, one of the things that they do as a sort of general type of practice is, um, is a lot of stuff with astral projection. And, in, for example, they do a lot of things with uh, groups of three people who will astral project and sort of meet up and then go do stuff. Um, and, they, you, know, it's for, you know, from a Satanist perspective, they don't have any, um, any uh, uh, in, in their minds, the reason that, it, in my opinion, that they can do it so successfully as a matter of basic practice, I mean, it's something that is common among true theistic Satanists, is because they are actually summoning, summoning a demon knowingly in order to facilitate that, uh, that process. So what uh, Russ Dizdar has said, and, and lots of times there can be, and this is a very, very rare occurrence with sleep paralysis, but there are occasions in sleep paralysis where the person is not actually dealing, uh, in other words, that there is... Um, that the person or that is essentially bothering them uh, is somebody that's astral projecting into the room, yet facilitated by a demon. Well, let me let me ask you that. I'm sorry, Chris. Let me break in real quick here. On that note, let me ask you this. As far as <clears throat> all right, this, there's people that say demonic entities come in and they see this and that. What about the people that basically wake up and they see you know somebody that was in their family that's passed away? And this person is just the the person that's you know basically sleeping is the one that's and there's been stories that we've heard about this, but um they basically see like their grandfather and their grandfather comes to them at their bedside and says everything's gonna be okay, everything's gonna be gonna be fine, this and that it's not and to them it's not necessarily a dream state it may be right before they fall asleep or something like that, but they see concrete they're able to. Um, but they may not move at that same time. So why would, if it, if it was a demonic presence at that point, just kind of being on the other side of things, what do you feel would make the demonic presence take that form and, and, and help them? Right. Well, would that also, uh, as a corollary to that question, would that fall in the, in the era, area of a positive sleep paralysis? Well, um, let's first of all, you said when when they're right falling asleep, that, that, that is actually sleep paralysis happens one of two places: right when you fall asleep, or right when you are about to wake. There's two, wake the, two different right, names right. for it. But um, um, okay, so so first of all, I will deal with the idea of is it possible to, in a dream or something, see a loved one that's passed away that says some encouraging words or or something like that. Um, Theologically, I don't think we have, I mean, we have uh, very little to go on there, but I would say that it's, it's certainly possible that God would grant that to somebody for a particular reason or something. So I don't have any reason to say that that sure. can happen. But what I can right. tell you from, from you know, years of doing this and talking with lots and lots of people and hearing their experiences, 
a, a lot of people have experienced sleep paralysis in the form of a dead relative. And usually it's just terrifying. I mean, it's, it's something that they're, they're uh, really? just doing something. I mean, you know, grandma, but she's all, you know, messed up and stuff like that. Uh, you know, and, and all this stuff Weird. like that, and it's just a plain scary thing. I mean, one recently, somebody um, had even somebody that wasn't dead, you know, that was, um, you know, still alive, but all grotesque and everything. But the 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 other issue is, and this is something that gets really, really when I talked about sometimes when it gets to the point where they are talking to you, um, and, and that's when a lot of deception can happen. And because sure. these things are saying something usually contradictory to the Bible in terms of the afterlife, like, hey, look, you don't have to worry about that. You know, everything's fine. Blah blah blah. Saying. If you, it's kind of like alien abductions. You know, they they take you. They came from millions and millions of miles uh, away to to tell you very specific things that are are get to, to contradict the Bible, and that's a lot of what we see when there's actual discussion. Now, in this situation, maybe it was very benign. There wasn't anything to the effect of that that would do that. But it, and I'm not just saying with relatives. You know, I've seen and heard about uh, lots of people. Uh, it, we, I wish I could think of some good examples of some of the things that they say in different forms that are brilliant. I mean, they're, they're genius deceivers, and, sure. and they, are, they have a, a purpose usually for that deception. So I, I would take all those things on a case-by-case basis. I wouldn't say out of hand that that definitely was demonic, because I think that God could, uh, could allow some, you know, that to happen for a good reason. But I would analyze it very, very carefully, because that is an extremely common occurrence whether they've seen a dead, it's, in other words, I just look at the, the dead relative thing as just another form that they take to A, scare people, B, deceive people, and it's probably about, you know, one quarter of the things that, you know, of people see, uh, the other being, you know, miscellaneous stuff, you know. So. What about guardian angels? Well, I want to add something here to that, what Chris is saying, is that I have had dreams about my grandmother who died when I was eight years old. And they've all been pleasant dreams. None of them have been terrifying. And also the fact that they've been a dream of where I'm already in the sleep state and I'm not coming out or going into the sleep state. So I think possibly the idea is that where they're supposed to communicate with us, I feel personally, is within dreams. I would agree with that, Adam, and I would uh, add to that that my mother has experienced uh, things like that, that she's convinced, you know, it, w- it was a dream, but it was, you know, very memorable, very different in, in some aspect or another, where she talked with her mother and, you know, or whatever, you know, all those kinds of things. And I've heard other uh, stories like that within dreams and so on that uh, that I, I, I absolutely say that there's, you know, there's nothing wrong with that and that's almost certainly genuine. Uh, and, of course, in the Bible, God uses dreams quite often to communicate different things with people uh and so there's there's no issue with that as far as i would i would see luke jump in here uh, got anything to ask yeah i got a question for you uh, have you done any research in um what would cause purposely sleep paralysis like uh what amalgamation of synthetics or food chemicals or whatever uh may cause you to to have or be more prone to sleep paralysis Good question. Right. Well, there, in terms of in terms of drugs and things like that, there are a number of things that almost certainly will cause uh, an episode of sleep paralysis. They, uh, there are. Uh, this has been shown in scientific papers and, and so on. 
particularly uh, anxiolytic drugs, um, uh, serotonin reuptake inhibitors. A lot. Of, you know, we could go on to a list of uh, of things that are known to uh, cause sleep paralysis, or at least I think you're five times more likely, or something. I can't remember what the data said, but um, but it was definitely proven. There are other drugs that we have seen that uh, can make it far more likely and more severe, uh, particularly drugs like DMT, ayahuasca, um, certain hallucinogens, uh, things like that, that will, uh, will, in my opinion, open up those doors. And I back mm-hmm. that part of it in terms of spiritually up because the Bible con- uh, talks about sorcery. Sorcery, by definition, is essentially contacting the spirit to, uh, to facilitate something. And, mm-hmm. and and in the Bible, that word sorcery, it comes from the Greek word pharmakia, where we get pharmacy from. And that makes sense, of course, because the early shamans in all history were using uh, drugs like ayahuasca and other things for the specific purpose. I mean, this is why shamans existed, to, to take the drugs, to contact the beings, to get information, but not free information. It was in right. exchange for sacrifice or any number of other things. But... Um, so, so drugs can facilitate it. There are another a number of other things. Like, I mean, obviously, occult stuff. If you're like, uh, like a person that, in terms of, if you wanted to start having sleep paralysis, a person could get into Satanism, and they're guaranteed to get it. I mean, that that's almost a guarantee. In fact, Satanism has a, a bunch of like spells and stuff that they try to uh, convince themselves that they can protect themselves with. You know, they have all kinds of protective spells to to help them when they're attacked by demons uh the the effectiveness of those are debatable but the fact is that they don't stop they are something that they continually have to deal with and is well known within satanism in fact uh this is also well known in most of the the spiritism type religions out there uh religions that are uh that contact uh like the mediums i can't remember of the name of that uh that uh religion that's basically about mediums but um it's well known even in their their literature that anybody that does this is going to have to be dealing with spiritual attacks on a constant basis, which is also true of shamans. Shamans were uh, had a had a short uh, uh, lifespan, if you will, in that, and that's why only one guy in the in the tribe was usually designated to contact these beings because ultimately the more that they contacted them, uh, the more vulnerable they were to uh, the the negative things that happen. Mm-hmm. I was in a, uh, to kind of hit on that a little bit, I, uh, spiritualist and, and things of that nature, and um, not to try to get off topic too much, but I visited a uh, small town in um, Florida one time trying to go to like a bed and breakfast, and ended up being a spiritualist community, and essentially the gentleman that uh, started in the basically late 18, mid 1800s, late 1800s, um, followed his spirit guide down through Florida, which was jungle back then. Um, and this was in the northeast part of uh, Florida, but beautiful land and whatnot. And he had started a community or a uh, spiritualist community, and there was it was full of mediums, psychics, and and it wasn't so much a circus in a sense, but it was very interesting to kind of see uh, just different lifestyles in that point. And they would go to church. They had chapel. They had and uh and they were based off the bible um but it, it's just it's it's an interesting take on things and uh just being around people that 
you know. Yeah, that's, just that's the interesting beacon. because that's actually who I was referring to, the spiritualists. Uh, and there is like the that sounds like it was probably the group that I was talking about. And I can't remember their their actual uh, uh, what they call themselves, but uh, that's that's them. Uh, and that's the part where yeah. you can read in their own literature that. Hey, yeah, this is what we promote, and we think it's all good. But uh, the more you do it, the more you're going to get attacked by negative entities. You know, so okay. so they they even recognize that their own practices are ultimately extremely dangerous. The more you do it, the more you're going to get attacked. Um, so so yeah, that, that that that's a good point. Chris, is there any group of people or ethnicity that Sleep paralysis may affect more. Um, I never came across it. I know that there have been a lot of studies done uh, targeting certain ethnicities, um, but mostly that was a function of just being, you know, their their uh, uh, who to draw from. For example, if it was done in the Philippines, the title of the study was "Sleep Paralysis uh, Prevalence Among Filipinos" or whatever. But uh, I have seen papers that have shown that there is there really is no direct correlation between gender, race, anything else like that. I think the consensus in the scientific community is that there really isn't um, there really isn't a prevalence with race or gender. Because I've heard a story that the um, Nightmare on Elm Street series was actually based on a real. And Bobby's laughing at me. But the <laughs> Nightmare on Elm Street series is actually based on a real. Uh, account of these people that were the uh, Laotian or the Hmong tribe, and they actually would uh, die in their sleep. Right, yeah. Yeah, I'm not sure. It's hard to say because, you know, the, the, it's difficult to prove uh, that they died during sleep paralysis, you know, because you can't really right. ask them, you know. Uh, whether you were you having sleep paralysis before you died, I mean, it, it, so it's difficult <laughs> to to know for sure uh, with that study, in my opinion. But I mean, to to to, I do think that Nightmare on Elm Street Street is very appropriate for somebody that is experiencing sleep paralysis. You know, every night, every other night, some people that are just terrified by what's going to happen tonight. Am I going to get you know raped again? You know, am I going to get strangled again? Am I going to get attacked? Whatever is going to happen. And they're afraid to go to sleep, so it's 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 very much like a the fear of nightmare on Elm Street. You know, we've had on uh, Rosemary Ellen Guiley. This was about uh, about a year or so ago, and we talked about the gin and their relationship with shadow people. And this seems like a very it seems very similar in a way to what goes on with that, like the sexual attacks and those things that happen with gin. Um, do you have an opinion that maybe that the possibility is that the the jinn would be involved in that? Well, jinn is a word essentially uh, ambiguous. I think that um, you know it's sort of what the the Islamic uh, community is called uh, demons, but it can also mean basically angels too. But um, sure. I, I think more appropriately, when talking about the sexual attacks, is you know properly called incubus or succubus attack, depending on if it's a man or woman. Um, that's being attacked or uh anyway the the point is that is definitely a part of sleep paralysis i i see i see the incubus and succubus attacks as basically a more severe form of sleep paralysis um and especially geared towards uh beautiful women um we know from genesis 6 that um that 
that the sons of God found the women of earth attractive. I think that there are, are other occasions in Scripture where you can also uh, make that case. And it's interesting with, with, with women that are attractive because they are more susceptible to, to uh, this severe form of sleep paralysis. Um, they need to be even more careful because the very you know the the very minute essentially that they open enough doors for that kind of physical attack to happen they often get it um whereas i can so it's it, on one hand it's considered a severe form of sleep paralysis that some people get only when they have opened up enough doors but but it seems as though when there is a will that is on the demonic part to uh you know that they that they really wait only until there is enough opportunity so it's interesting to 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 note that I, I um that that beautiful women are more susceptible to it. And I think it's interesting that uh, Katy Perry song about uh, essentially sleep paralysis she she interpreted in terms of aliens or whatever, but it's an incubus or succubus attack. So what if what if that's just brought on by their own narcissism, like through their mind, you know? Like, well, sure it is. You know, I mean, what if that and they've created this whole world of dream state to where it's become reality to them in a sense, you know, just because they're, you know, they look at each other in the mirror, or they look at themselves in the mirror. There's a lot of women, though, that that have that fear, you know, throughout the day in public, and if they maybe live in a more, uh, a rougher area, you know, in a rougher city or something, they have that fear throughout the day, and then when they fall asleep at night, it'll reflect that in in their dreams. Yeah, if you look in the scientific literature about the sexual attacks within sleep paralysis, they have all kinds of theories, uh, particularly, you know, they'll they'll say uh, that it's because they were molested, but then you find, you know, they weren't molested, and, you know, they've they've tried a bunch of things to see if it made sense. They've tried a bunch of hypotheses to see if you could make it work with everybody that's experiencing that. And in my opinion, I don't think, I mean, because it is so common, I mean, it's something that not a lot of women talk about, um, but but it is something that I mean that is relatively common, and uh, you know they don't have to be super beautiful or anything as far as you know whatever we consider beauty to be uh, for this to happen. They just uh, so I don't think that narcissism is necessarily involved with it. Neither do I think it's a, a built-in fear of being raped or anything like that that's causing it. Um, you have to you know there's this idea that you know you think what's going to happen and then it's going to happen, but you know, when these events are happening, it's so far out of the realm of something that is uh, that we we see in any other context. I mean, they if if it's true that that they're they're you know slight, if there is such a you know fear of uh, whatever hypothesis that we throw at it is causing this. When you look at the actual uh, experience and, and and hear what they say happened, I mean, they really are experiencing a a true physical encounter with something in their bed but it almost seems like it's a mental snowball you know what i mean like basically like they think of it that's their fear and they have a dream that's about it and then it's no you know what i mean it's causing more and more fear creating more and more thoughts creating more and more dreams and right that's um, i mean that's a theory but you know if it was if it was true, then we would expect to see some more evidence of those kinds of things happening. Somebody uh, that's afraid of something else uh, literally manifests that thing in a very physical, real way. 
I mean, it's just not a, it's just not a common thing that we see somebody literally manifesting a very physical attack uh, because of their fears. Now, if that was, you know, if that could be tested or proven or whatever, I think that it's a hypothesis that should be looked at. Like I said, they have been trying to in the in the scientific papers to come up with some kind of anti supernatural uh, 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 explanation for the sexual attacks and. Uh, the prominent one is that nowadays, anyway, is the the idea that they've been molested, but that's falling apart because um, you know, or or basically, uh, or raped in the past, I think is another one, or or whatever. But but that's falling apart because it's not matching up with the evidence. So you have a theory there that could be tested. You know, we could ask some of these people, uh, do you have an unnatural fear of being raped? Has that ever been a ma- major thing before this happened? And that would be something that would need to be tested if it, to see if it was true. Well, you know, there, there's some of it is is that they're inviting some of that in. I mean, there was an actress that I don't remember her name, but she came out and said that she had uh, she enjoyed sex with a ghost and and she, uh, said she was inviting it and she was uh, telling Streisand? she was telling other people. No, it wasn't Barbara Streisand. <laughs> she was telling other people to. Uh, to enjoy it and to try it, right? And that this happened a few months ago. Yeah, that that's an interesting thing because uh, a lot of times, you know, people will write in and they'll say w- what's happening, and um, and they'll a lot of times there's sort of a, a giving up at some point because ultimately, if they do give up, it can be pleasurable. Um, and so the 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 thing, and sometimes it goes all the way to the, that spectrum you're, you're looking at now. In fact, I can think of a lot of instances of similar things that you're talking about where people are encouraging it, saying it's good, saying that they like it. And when that happens, if somebody writes in like that, I try to convince them that uh, on the point that, you, you know, you may be enjoying it, but you, you need to realize that, that you, you don't have a say in it. You know, you, you, it, you can't tell them to stop. You know, ultimately, you may be enjoying it, but it is still, it is still a violation. It's still something that you need to, to not be complicit about. You need to figure out how to stop this because you are uh, being violated, even though if you give up because you think it's an inevitability, something that's just happening that you have to deal with, then you might as well enjoy it. Then, well, if that spreads, the men are completely done for, huh? <laughs> no need for real women. Wait till you fall asleep at night. Yeah, you know there there's a lot of that, that stuff. There there's uh yeah, especially among the there's this uh, spiritist kind of group on uh, YouTube that uh, has always been encouraging people to to enjoy the sexual encounters and things like that. It's a it's a it's a terrible thing. So all this that we're talking about, and I want to, uh, I want to relay a story about a friend of mine, and I'm not going to say who this, this person's name. Um, he had gotten in touch with me and told me that he had been having the same kind of things. Although he did not um, say that it was sleep paralysis. He said the first thing that he had said was that he looked outside his house, saw some red eyes looking at him from a tree, and then the second thing was he saw this black mass hovering over him, and uh, while he was sleeping, 
and said that it was, then it just screamed at him, and then he woke up. Is this Joe again? No, no. <laughs> so he was, you know he was awake is. or asleep? He was asleep at the time. The first time he saw the eyes in the tree, he, thought, <coughs> he said he was awake. Then he started having these dreams where, and you would be familiar with this, Chris, he started having these dreams where he was told every stock ancient aliens idea in the book. You know, told how that uh, this this creature identified itself as a demon called Balbarus, which, by the way, is real, and said that uh, that they had created mankind and and all of this kind of oh. all this kind what of stuff. What was his information before this, though? Did he? I mean, was he watching the show all the time? Was he I had asked him. He said he said no. And I'll, 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 I'll say to that 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 is actually kind of common. One of the tactics that yep. I've heard before is it, when I t- talk about these guys are these these beings are brilliant. Uh, one of the things that they'll do is they'll appear as some kind of like Egyptian god or something like that, and they'll say, you know, my name is some ridiculous eighteen-letter word. And you yeah, know, in this case, it and then the person the wakes up and Google's it, and lo and behold, you know, it's really this thing, you know, or whatever. And I've right. heard so many different stories of people like, and then I Googled it, and it was real. Now, of course, you could say, well, maybe they had it in their subconscious or something like that. But all I can say is that that particular tactic is pretty darn common, and it's not like consistent. Yeah. In your case, it was an ancient aliens. I, you know, I've heard all kinds of gamut of different stuff. You know, from so it's just, and that's one of the things that gets me about it. If it was some kind of genuine thing, as they're believing, then you know, why not at all? All be uh, aliens, or all be uh, different, you know, gods, or all be uh, the different things that they say. I've heard all kinds of stuff. So it's very, you know, it's 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 geared toward what the person is interested in. That's one of the the brilliant parts about it is that they 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 focus in on whatever they know makes that person tick and would be more likely to get that person to do more uh, of what benefits them ultimately, which is to uh, open up more doors, to give them more authority, to give them more power, and ultimately uh, to possess the person if they go far enough. Well, let me ask you too, Chris. I want to ask you uh, on the reverse side of that was uh, why you, as someone that's trying to help people, get out of this, why you would have sleep paralysis yourself. Well, I think that, and I say this in the book, that sleep paralysis can occur to anybody at any time for any reason. Um, most people have, an ex- have had an experience of sleep paralysis at least once in their life, sometimes you know, two or three times in their lifetime. Um, and I think that there are any number of reasons that that can happen. And... Uh, it, it is not based on your, you know, spiritual state. It can happen to the uh, a Christian, a non-Christian, anybody that's doing good, not doing good, whatever. Uh, the the focus of the book is for people that are having consistent sleep paralysis. It, it's very difficult to to run down reasons why a person had that one isolated event of sleep paralysis in 1989 or whatever. There's almost never a, a a reason if you look at their life or you know try to figure out what what could have opened those doors, um, it, it, and sometimes it, I mean I'm sure that there is a reason if one looked uh, looked closely enough or whatever, but it's but when you get into the cases of somebody having it you know several times a month or you know uh, once every few months or or uh, several times a week or multi you know times a week or every night when you get into that area what I call consistent or regular sleep paralysis there is always a reason that a uh, door that's open. 
in my particular well, in my particular case, I'd say that um, I was actually extremely analytical about my life at the time that I had those three occurrences of sleep paralysis. Uh, I, I looked at it in terms of you know what what did I you know could what was I doing was I doing something I should have been doing or all these different things right uh, because almost as a experiment I guess. And when I look at right. when I look at all three of the experiences, they were all unique in a particular way, uh, showing different aspects of sleep paralysis. So, for example, one time it occurred on my side, one time it occurred on my back, showing me that, uh, in, at least in my case, you know, a lot of people say, "Oh, it won't happen if you're on your side." Well, it happened on my side, you know, and. I, and, and looking at my life at those times, not that I'm uh, perfect or, or, or uh, uh, not prone to sinning in some way, but in that particular time that I got it, I didn't have any anything that I could say, well, I shouldn't have been doing that. You know, maybe it was a lucky week for me where I was doing good or whatever, you know. But the point is, I couldn't find anything that made sense uh, in my life that would, would have caused it those times. So I feel personally that uh, I was I was allowed to experience sleep paralysis those times for understanding it better. Uh, and that's my personal view of it. But that doesn't mean that a Christian can't get it. Um, I do think that the, the point is, especially when people have open doors in the past in their life and they become a Christian, uh, really the only th- I mean, in, in a lot of cases, people that were having sleep paralysis and then became a Christian, they just won't, will stop having sleep paralysis. But in the cases where somebody's opened doors, and they become a Christian, a lot of times it doesn't automatically shut off. They now have the ability to stop it using the authority that Jesus has given to Christians for this specific purpose, uh, because he, he didn't want them to attack us. He essentially knew that they were going to try if they had the ability. Um, but he has given us an authority to essentially not just stop the individual experience, but to end it for good. And so ultimately what they need to do is then begin to use that a gift that he's given every single Christian uh, in spiritual warfare. In other words, they have to play offense at that point. Um, right. So it, he's given them he's given them the tools to play offense now that they're a Christian, but they still need to play it, especially if they've opened a lot of doors. Um, so, so yeah. And I would say that there's another. I mean, there's other cases in which Christians can get it um, that are. For example, missionaries going on missionary journeys where there is uh, something, for example, sent spirits. A very common thing in occultism is people sending spirits on uh, on Christians in terms of attack and stuff like that. We've heard of uh, missionaries that were uh, in a place where a lot of the witch, the witch doctors considered their territory and things like that. Um, in addition, I think that there is uh, a version of this that can just be simply unlucky, particularly if, some, if somebody is in a hotel room or something that uh, a room in some old house or whatever that has been used for uh, seance or some other kind of place where demonic beings were summoned uh, before right. it can be that. I usually don't mention that one too much because I think a lot of times when people ha- are having sleep paralysis all the time, they want to default to that and say, oh, that's what I got. You know, my house is haunted. Uh, but I can't tell you how many emails I've got of people saying, I moved and my house, my new house is haunted too. So it's like, well, yeah. I don't think your house is haunted. I think you just have some open what doors. Do, what do you think about um, mood books? Like basically, or not necessarily mood books, but dream books. Like a lot of people say, like if you, if you have a dream and you wake up and it's fresh in your mind, write it down. You know, and it could be the most awkward, just weird, off the wall. I was in a land of pineapples, and they were talking to me, you know, and, you know, and small tomatoes were riding by on skateboards, you know, and, like, and, 
and the people that could like maybe break that down, and then you look in these books, and it's like, okay, there was one thing that jurisdicted the whole dream, then that was a topic of subject, you know, just, I mean, I know that's kind of out there, but I mean, what, what, you, what do you, like, where do these people even come up with this stuff? Well, I mean, would dreams fall in that category, because I mean, it's so, not So, to state. restate the question, number one, um, about keeping dream journals, uh, any information or thoughts about that, and then the second right. part about dream interpretation, sometimes they have books about, well, this because you had that dream, it means so and so and such and such? Right, right. Okay. Well, first of all, with the dream journal thing, this is actually with people that do uh, lucid dreaming. That's something that they uh, tell people to do right off the bat is to start keeping a dream journal in order to, uh, to recall dreams better because it's, in their view, a very integral part of inducing uh, lucid dreams and so on. Uh, I don't know. I don't think that anything's wrong with it, but I do know that uh, ultimately with lucid dreaming, it ends up being the same kind of thing. The more that you lucid dream, the more you sleep, have sleep paralysis and so on and so forth. Um, right. But the, the other issue with dream interpretation, well, we see in the Bible that dreams are often given and they oftentimes require t interpretation. But uh, when we see the kind of interpretation that's often done out there with dream books and stuff like that, that's actually more like in the Bible when, uh, for example, Nebuchadnezzar calls his, all his you know, occultists and wise men and dream interpreters to interpret this dream that was a real dream from God. And, they, and it's funny to see their reaction because they're like, oh, yeah, we got this. You, know, you, actually, you actually can see in Babylonian records like basically a dream interpretation guideline, uh, much like the books that we have today. But what was funny about that, when they had a real dream that Nebuchadnezzar said, look, you got to interpret this dream, and I'm not even going to tell you the dream. You know, all the rest of that particular time, uh, they certainly couldn't get it. But you see other occasions where they just couldn't uh, uh, do it. So I think that that and a lot of those dream interpretation books are, you know, you could almost write them yourself if you gave it enough thought. I looked at something recently just to uh, uh, do some research on a particular issue, and and. And I was thinking about, you know, if you dream about water, it's because, you know, something your life is flowing in a particular direction or whatever. You know, you could, you could essentially write the book and call it a dream interpretation book, and who's going to prove you wrong? You know, there's no right or wrong answer. So right. you can win-win with that, take all the way to the bank. So I don't know. You would have no way to essentially uh, prove that, and so therefore it's a very difficult thing to analyze whether it's accurate or not. Right. I just thought it was an interesting thing. Like, I mean, I don't know. It's kind of fun, but then again, it's kind of you know controversial and this and that. Well, well and I also I think that when, uh, because dreams can be important, and dreams often to, do convey informa information, but uh, but they are they tend to be unique, at least in my experience and uh, other experiences that, I, that I've heard. I mean, they're not as common. And usually, if you're having a dream that's important, uh, that's God given for a particular reason or whatever, um, it, it, it's something that's very prominent. It sticks in your mind. You, it's not like the other dreams in which you uh, easily forget them. And I think that's one of the things that makes them different. You, when you see in the Bible when somebody has a dream like that, a king or something that he wants interpreted, there is no doubt in that person's mind that that dream was different than a regular old dream, you know? Well, let me, let me battle it on this one. So say if somebody goes through a bad breakup, you know, and their, their number one thought is that person that that was, you know, involved in their life and, and no more, it's cut off, this and that. They go to sleep and they dream about negative things with that person or happy things, 
that that person and them shared and it's negative in their life and that's their number one thought the next day like they don't necessarily forget it i mean well, well yeah, it's not like, it's not just the not forgetting i mean there, there are dreams that we have that we don't forget because they were good bad whatever but but it's those dreams that you don't forget and it's clear that there was something significant about it in terms of its meaning or whatever i don't think that we should take every dream that we remember and say well that must be special right. i think there is a, a quality about uh, truly god-given dreams that you just know that you know that that was something significant whether it needs an interpretation or not do you feel like that could be a demonic thing that 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 they bring about the only in kind of dream? thing i would say in terms of demonic dreams uh, is not your usual nightmare or anything bad or whatever. I think what you're sort of describing is essentially what dreams do. It's sort of a dump for uh, the subconscious, you know, and, and you know, whatever is, is building up there or whatever, uh, or maybe not a build-up thing. I'm not sure exactly the nature of why we dream and the way we dream, but the point is is that it, it sort of draws on our subconscious and stuff. So, But in terms of demonic dreams, they because I do think that there is an aspect of... of uh, demonic dreams and one of those things that is very common is that you may be in a regular dream the regular subconscious stuff is going on but then there is this uh, antagonist in the dream that is clearly uh, evil not just a regular nightmare evil it is like dripping evil it is something completely different uh, and oftentimes those dreams uh, will manifest in a, uh, a sleep paralysis experience. It's difficult to describe this unless you've had it. And one of the three times that I had sleep paralysis, I was, I would say, in, in, for this reason, lucky enough to experience this, is because I was able to understand a lot of what people were describing when they were describing this kind of thing. That is to say that they had a dream before sleep paralysis in which there was, you know, they're having a regular dream, but then this thing showed up and it was, saying this blasphemous stuff and it was just obviously evil and they woke up and you know they were being attacked in their room and the way I describe that in the book is essentially that it's much like you interpreting something else that happens in the room while you're sleeping so I use the example of if, a, if your dog jumped on the bed and started licking your face while you were dreaming uh, you might interpret that in your dream as like I don't know, water on your face or some kind of thing that you would just, or if your alarm clock. Grandma went, licking your cheek or something. Yeah, yeah, you know, some, or your alarm clock goes off and you think it's a siren or something like That's that in your dream. Stirring. And in a similar way, if there really is a demon in the room that is exuding an evil that I think is almost a different kind of sense that we have, that we can kind of feel the presence of the, the evil uh, when a demon is in the room, uh, there's a sort of an intangible sort of feeling that happens. I think your body feels that in its sleeping state, your dreaming state, is, and, and basically incorporating that into a regular subconscious dream. Now, that is my particular theory about how why demonic dreams happen. There are other theories from people that believe that uh, demons can actually get into your dream and, uh, and, and communicate there. I don't go there. I don't think that they can, but uh, there are some people that, uh, that think that that's a possibility, and uh, I'm, I'm sort of agnostic on that yeah Chris I wanted to uh, you know change subjects somewhat in the time that we have left here and uh, you're working or you've actually released a new book called false Christ and uh, I think like the mystery Babylon book that we had you on about the uh, uh, last November um, I think it's going to probably raise some controversy 
And can you kind of go over why that uh, that idea that you're po you're postulating in the book False Christ would um, would cause that controversy? Yeah. Um, well, the book is essentially uh, the thesis of it is that the Antichrist will attempt to present himself as the Jewish Messiah. Um, whether he right. claims to be Jesus or not, I am not sure. I tend to lean towards that, but he will definitely convince the the Jews that he is the long-awaited Messiah and that he's going to try his best to appear as if he is instituting what Jew Jewish believers know as the Messianic Age and what Christians know as the Millennial Reign. And there are a lot of things that we see in Scripture that, that are uh, kind of odd that we see the Antichrist doing, and I think that the best interpretation for those things is that he is trying his best to uh, uh, do the things that the Jews and Christians are waiting for the Messiah to do. For example, um, both Jews and Christians are waiting. For example, one of the reasons that the Jews rejected Jesus as the Messiah is because they had such clear teaching about the Messiah that said when the Messiah comes, he's going to destroy the enemies of Israel. The Jews are waiting on Jesus to destroy the Romans and to make Israel the capital city of the world, which is what it's supposed to happen in Isaiah. It's supposed to, they're supposed to make Jerusalem the, the capital city and, it's, and the Messiah is going to rule from that city and defeat the enemies. So that was even the disciples of Jesus, right up until the very last minute when he ascended into heaven, they're like, hey, are you going to do the whole conquering the Romans thing now, or do we have to <laughs> wait a little bit? Or And, so, uh, wait on dinner? and he said, uh, you know, it's not for you to know the, uh, the I can't remember the exact quote, but uh, but so we, we as Christians believe that Jesus will ultimately do all those things that the Old Testament predicted. But that the but the Jewish people are waiting on that to happen. Not just a person to conquer their their many enemies, but also to set up Jerusalem as the capital city of the world, and most importantly, to start the sacrificial system again in the temple. And all those things are what we see the Antichrist doing. A very little known. Uh, it shouldn't be little known because it's quite obvious. But uh, Daniel eleven forty through forty five has the Antichrist. Uh, in his wars, because the Antichrist, as the uh, first seal in Revelation says, he goes out conquering and to conquer. In Revelation 13, it talks about how people are so impressed with him because he is able to absolutely conquer everybody. It says, who can make war with the beast? And they marveled at him. They, yeah. In Daniel 11:40 through 45, describes the Antichrist absolutely crushing the Muslim world. Uh, per, the, the Muslim world attacks him. The first, uh, uh, Egypt, attacks him first, and then later the northern coalition of Arab states attacks him, and he absolutely destroys them. And one of the reasons he is able to destroy people so easily is because, as Daniel tells us, that he is empowered by a god of fortresses uh, that gives him his ability to make this kind of war so effectively, whether that's a technological advantage or a supernatural advantage uh, in terms of the way it looks, I don't know. But it's also reiterated in Revelation 13 where it says that Satan is going to give him the power to defeat his enemies in battle. So we tend to see the Antichrist as a peacemaker, a guy that's going to you know, bring everybody together and sing Kumbaya. But, the, but Scripture tells us, first of all, and, and for, foremost, he's a man of absolute uh, great military prowess who completely destroys the Muslim world. And I would submit that if we're waiting on, uh, you know, the way that we kind of look at prophecy now is that we're all waiting on the, the, the Muslim nations to 
to attack Israel, but they're going to be defended, and then you know the end times will begin. I mean, that's that's become the Christian sort of doctrine now that if we ever see the enemies yeah. of Israel, the, the the big bad Muslims destroyed, well, we're we're going to think that's a pretty good thing. But the Bible is telling us, I believe, that the Antichrist is going to attempt to look as if he is doing what Jesus is going to do when he comes back. Essentially, he's pushing forward the timeline by doing what he is able to do, which is start wars, you know, get people to fight each other. I mean, that's old hat to him. I mean, that's sort of his forte. So he is, I think, doing a lot of things uh, that is Satan to essentially set up this great deception that I feel is going to be focused more on Christians than we realize. I've had theories in the past that tried to figure out a way that the Antichrist could deceive the whole world into worshiping them, how he could get, uh, you know, uh, uh, atheists and Hindus and, and everybody else to worship him. And that's why I sort of gravitated toward the alien Antichrist theory, because I thought, well, that's something that'll get everybody to throw down their religions, you know, except for Christians, because we'll know that they're demons, so we don't, we, you know, we, we won't be convinced by that. But that will convince the world. So that was my criteria for figuring out who the Antichrist is, but now looking at this in light of uh, uh, Scripture, I feel like his goal mainly is to deceive Christians and that we are basically his primary target for deception. He doesn't really care, in my opinion, too much about the people that are, you know, as sad, sad as it is, going to hell anyway. I mean, he doesn't want to make them, you know, he doesn't need to do a whole lot to them. But his great, uh, you know, Jesus tells us that the main concern of his is a great apostasy. That is, the people that are Christians leaving Christianity. And that is Jesus' primary concern about the deception of the end times, not the other way around, the world becoming even more unsaved because they're worshiping the Antichrist. Uh, so, so why is it controversial? Well, the main thing is that, uh, that there is a very, uh, you know, that people see this absolutely completely differently, you know. Uh, for example, Joel Richardson, who... Uh, you know, wrote the book Mideast Beast that promotes the Islamic Antichrist theory. He essentially, if you uh, kind of read between the lines of what he's saying in his book, he is telling us that when the the man that the, the Islamic people are expecting called the Mahdi, or excuse, yeah, the Dajjal, excuse me, when the Dajjal shows up, who is the bad guy in Islamic eschatology, his name is Abmashid al-Dajjal, which means imposter messiah. And so they're going to view him as the bad guy, that is, the Islamic people, and they're going to go to war with him. And Joe Richardson in his book says, look, when you see a guy show up that's, that's claiming to be the Jewish Messiah, that's going to be Jesus. And, you know, I think that the Antichrist is going to claim to be Jesus, and he's going to convince the Jews of his uh, messianic credentials. In other words, Joe Richardson is telling people, if, if my view is in any sense correct, if it's even half correct, the kind of people that are waiting on an Islamic Antichrist and an Islamic big, big bad thing are being set up to worship the Antichrist as Jesus Christ. When Jesus isn't going to do any kind of you know, regular warfare and throw some nukes at uh, you know, the Islamic people, Jesus goes in, into great detail, the Bible goes into great detail in several places, uh, su suggesting or outright saying that he doesn't need any help from any armies or anything when he comes to uh, execute the day of the Lord judgments culminating in Armageddon. It's him and him alone, and by also his angelic armies. But even the descriptions of, of those battles are very clear. Look, this is me and me alone. I'm not. I don't need you to run any tanks for me or shoot any nukes for me. Uh, this is my vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I will repay. 
as Romans 12 says. But anyway, any any questions about that? Luke, do you have anything you want to add? No, you know I'm on the other end of the spectrum. From all three of you guys. <laughs> well, I just want to make an observation. I mean, just um, I've always thought that possibly that the Antichrist would come and say that he was the Islamic Mahdi and that he was also the Jewish Messiah. And the possibility of him saying that he was the um, return of Christ as well, so that he would be all things to all groups. Right. Yeah, that's sort of the, the main line there. And I would say that, first of all, when we look at Islam, Islamic eschatology, I think that there is a, a tendency to see Islamic eschatology as like a, a prophecy that Satan made or something that's going to come true. But if you look at how Islamic eschatology developed, what, what it's mostly coming from the Hadith. Uh, it doesn't mention any of this in the Quran. It, these are the Hadith, which were supposedly sayings of Muhammad, which were written uh, about a you know, up until about 1,000 uh, A.D. In fact, most of the, the hadiths that have anything to do with what this theory is today were written around that time, 900 A.D., 1,000 A.D. To put that in perspective, that's like 900 years after the book of Revelation was written. And I make that point to suggest, not just to suggest, to say that, for example, Tabarini, the guy who wrote, uh, you know, the, the idea, some of these ideas that we're getting this from, he was so familiar with Christian eschatology. I mean, he knew it backwards and forwards. So it was sort of his specialty. He knew all about what the Christian viewed the Antichrist was going to do. Now, a very consistent thing in Islamic doctrine is that they just, they reverse the roles. They believe in their official doctrine that the Bible is, you know, true-ish, but it was corrupted over the years. So they believe that gives them the license to change the roles. So, for example, uh, uh, one of the Islamic doctrines is that when Abraham, uh, as we know, took Isaac up to, uh, you know, when he was tested by God, they retell that story, but instead of Isaac, they say, well, it's been corrupted. It was really Ishmael that went up there with Abraham because he was really his favorite son and all this other stuff. So they use the same stories, but they sort of switch the roles. And they do this. That's, that is Islamic doctrine from in the Quran. It's just the Bible reversed the roles. And if you consider that Christianity is expecting Jesus to come back to rule the world and to destroy the unbelievers and to set up a, a kingdom, okay, that, that one thing, if you reverse the roles there, because they are essentially saying, hey, we believe that too. You know, we believe the Bible. You know, you can't really do much with that. If you believe the Bible, Jesus has got to come back and he's got to rule the world and he's got to destroy the enemies. That's like you can't do away with that. So what they did is they just said, well, we can't have Jesus be a Christian. He's got to be a Muslim, you know, of course, because we're Muslims, and of course he's going to do that. So their version of Islamic eschatology is not some new revelation from Satan. It's just, hey, what, if, what happens if you reverse the roles? If you reverse the roles, then you have Jesus coming back as a Muslim, destroying the enemies of Israel. And the Mahdi is essentially the same thing as that, yeah. a guy who, who comes back, destroys the enemies of Israel. They, the reason that they had to add Jesus is just because you can't get around it. it the, the Bible is so clear that Jesus is coming back that they essentially had to incorporate that into the doctrine. But the Mahdi is a part of that. If you actually look at their eschatology, Jesus is the one that will rule over everything, not the Mahdi in terms of the, the kingdom that he sets up and everything. So on the one hand, I think that it's dangerous to assume that the Islamic doctrines are going to come true, that we need to you know, prepare for a, a, a fake 
uh, a fake Jesus and a, and, a, and a Dijal and a Mahdi, the reason I talk about the Dijal, and, and I would say that regardless of anything, that you are going to have a Dijal. They're going to call, let's say it like this, they're going to call the Antichrist the Dijal whether we like it or not. They're not, I don't feel personally that anybody's going to show up and say I'm the Mahdi or anybody's going to show up and say I'm Isa. My, my own view, I think that if that happened, it would be most dangerous to Christians because Christians need an Antichrist to be destroyed by the Messiah in order to feel like that Messiah is truly the Messiah. In other words, the Christians absolutely need a patsy Antichrist if they're going to believe anything about somebody's the return of Christ. You know, you just can't say, hey, I'm Jesus. And he's like, well, I don't remember any Antichrist. So I think it would be most dangerous to Christians if, they're, if, they're, if the Islamic doctrines did come true. But my point about the Dajjal is if the Antichrist really is planning on, on, on um, uh, claiming to be the Jewish Messiah, that alone is the only thing that is, is needed for the Islamic people to do what the Antichrist needs him to do, the, them to do. Basically, if you look at the Bible, look at Daniel 11, for example, when I mentioned that Egypt has to attack him first. And this, Nor- this northern Arab coalition attacks the Antichrist. You, you know, how do you explain that? And, and I, you know, I was reading Joel Richardson's book about that. You know, Egypt's attacking the Antichrist, and you know all this other stuff. How do you explain that if you know they're Muslims, and all of a sudden the Muslims are going to attack their, this other Muslim? So he doesn't even dwell on it. He doesn't even have an explanation for that in his book. And that's what I'm saying. But my point is, is that that war, the attack, the Antichrist absolutely requires the entire Muslim world to attack him because he needs them to attack him in order to look like he is, well, he is going to defeat him, to look like he is fulfilling the prophecies of attacking the enemies of Israel. In other words, he requires an epic war to win if he's going to make this thing work. And so because he is going to claim, in my opinion, to be the Jewish Messiah, and because the very name, Ad-Dajjal, means imposter messiah, they're going to see, regardless of anything else, they're going to see this as the war that they must fight. In Islamic doctrine, one of the things that I believe is kind of a time bomb is that it says that when they see, regardless of the Mahdi, they're not told to do this when they see the Mahdi, technically they're not even waiting for Isa to show up because Isa's not even supposed to show up until they're in the middle of this war. So they're supposed to fight the war before even Isa shows up. So they're not going to be waiting around for Isa. Um, they they would expect that if Isa is really going to come, then we've got to go fight this war. The war that they have to fight is when they see the imposter messiah, you must crawl over glass to go and fight this war. It's, it's, it's in order to make the end times come about. It's a very, very important doctrine. So the very presence of a man who has, who has claimed to be the, the Jewish messiah and most importantly set up a temple or uh, at least a sanctuary of some sort on the temple mount, that will cause a war. And I know people try to say, well, maybe he's going to find a way to make peace with the Muslims and not have to destroy the Dome of the Rock and stuff like that. My personal view, after you know studying Islamic eschatology and Islamic doctrine, you, right now you can't even open a Bible on the Temple Mount. Uh, you can't pray on the Temple Mount. It, you know, even though the Jewish people technically have sovereignty over the site, you know, it would cause a, a war if people started going up there and sacrificing animals to Yahweh. That's not going right. to fly. And so that alone will unite the Muslim world against the Antichrist, who, because of his claiming to be the Jewish Messiah, they will necessarily have to see as the Amashi Adajal, therefore causing them to go to war with him, therefore, because of his supernatural ability at war, destroy them, and, and thereby, for Christians and Jews, 
look like he has done the very thing, thing that Christians and Jews are waiting on. And the, the, thing that, the strength of this theory is not that, hey, this is a scenario that could work. This is what the Bible says the Antichrist is going to do, yet we don't pay attention to it because it doesn't make sense with any of the current theories about the Antichrist. Um, so it, it, it's, it's something that, that, in a way, kind of stresses me out a little bit because I think that we're so, if it's true, you know, we're so far behind. I don't I certainly don't think that this is something I came up with all by myself or anything. This is the earliest view of the church. Uh, everybody, up until the Catholic Church essentially took over, had the view that the Antichrist would do this. I mean, the church fathers are unanimous that they thought that the Antichrist would uh, try to present himself as the Jewish Messiah. It's a doctrine that has been lost and forgotten. Uh, so it's certainly not a new thing or that I am originating. And it was the same in the Mystery Babylon book, and when you were talking about Jerusalem being the being Mystery Babylon, a lot of the earlier church fathers had had said that. Right. Well, they 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 had a the view that he would be the Antichrist, but the, on Mystery Babylon, they didn't they didn't talk a whole lot about it. You can't find too much of, on the church fathers about Mystery Babylon, particularly. Uh, they didn't comment on it too much until a lot later, where it kind of got a little little skewed. Uh, Chris, I want to ask you in the time that we have left, uh, what are you working on now, and where can everybody get your books, what, you, what you've written? Uh, I'm kind of in between things right now. I'm, I'm trying to finish up with uh, making a lot of um, uh, free videos for the uh, False Christ book and just putting those on YouTube. I don't want to finish up with this whole thing first before I move on to the next thing. And uh, I'm actually, I really want to analyze what it is I'm supposed to be doing and what it is that's most profitable for me to do, not in terms of money, but in terms of, you know, what, you know, what I can use my time for the best in order to make the most impact and the kind of mission statement of what I want to do. And I may have to rearrange things and sort of get rid of a lot of projects to focus on what's the most important. And I honestly don't know yet what, where I can be the most effective. So I'm going to take some time off when I get done with this and try to figure out that. Uh, in terms of the books and stuff like that, Amazon's probably the best way. Um, you know, just go to or you know go to Amazon and type in Chris White, and you can go to my Amazon author profile and see the different books and stuff. But sleep paralysis, if you're interested in that, uh, I've tried to make that as cheap as possible. It's for free on the site, stopsleepparalysis.org, both an audio book and uh, uh, in, in articles and stuff. You can read it all on the site. But I've made the Kindle book 99 cents for that uh, to make it uh, you know for, get out as much as possible. So. You know, the paperback is as cheap as they'll let me sell it on Amazon, but uh, the Kindle is, is 99 cents. All right. Well, Chris, I want to thank you for coming on and yeah. uh, stay on the line, and uh, we'll be right back on Conspiranormal. All right. Thanks, guys. One. All right. We're back on Conspiranormal, <laughs> and uh, that was quite an interview with Chris White. What did you guys just want to get you guys' uh, thoughts on it? A lot. Lots to take in. Lots to take in. A lot going on. Yeah. 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 And uh, you guys know, you know, I'm on the opposite end of the spectrum. I'm not Christian. And the three of you guys are. Um, three of us, including Chris. Oh, okay. I got yeah. you. I'm like, is there somebody else? <laughs> here? Is there somebody else in here? <laughs> Get back in your cave. You know, uh, I just, I don't really see sleep paralysis as being like a means, of, like a medium for communication because it's not not like a pleasant experience for anybody really i think yeah. the outer outer body stuff out of body yeah yeah 
might might include some paralysis sometimes, but not like intentionally. Um, and you know, you know, I, I, uh, yeah, go ahead. Well, I'll get here. your opinion on it. Well, what do you think sleep paralysis is? I mean, what do you think that you know? Do you think that it is anything to, so, to note, or do you think that it's like what we've discussed before on the show, like a, a means of achieving an altered state of consciousness? Well. Um, I, there's definitely like a, the scientific process, you know, you go into REM sleep, uh, there's a whole science behind it, you know, why we dream and stuff, and like he was saying, right. some dreams have no uh, symbolic nature because they're just regurgitations of what we see throughout the day and what we think of. Of what's going on in your subconscious. Yeah, right. and so we kind of like toss those dreams aside, you know, uh, okay, I've been thinking a lot about the breakup, you know, and that's what I've been dreaming about, stuff to do with that. But then you also have those like meaningful symbolic dreams. Twist the knob a little bit, level please. Turn it up. Yeah. Turn it up, man. Turn up. All right, that's a little better. Thank you. All right. Anyway, sorry to interrupt. You. Um. Yeah. So, I I think that uh, uh, sleep paralysis is more of like a scientific thing in nature because uh, I think that. Sometimes, and, and um, I've experienced it whenever, like, I oversleep. And I, well, I know that when I oversleep, I have the most vivid, craziest, weirdest dreams. And also, the only, like, two times, three times that I've had sleep paralysis happen yeah. whenever uh, I oversleep. So I think, it, I, I feel like it's more of a scientific thing. Right. Uh, you know, the, I've, I want to say that I probably have had it. I can remember being um, like 11 or 12 years old and like um, not being able to move. Uh, I can remember seeing like a figure in my doorway and not being able to move, which was uh, <coughs> interesting. Um, but sometimes I've had these like dreams where it's like stress dreams where you, I felt had one where I was like on the floor and I was like trying to reach for the light and then the light switch, but I couldn't quite make it. Mm. That's kind of weird stuff like that. And Bobby, I thought you did a good job uh, kind of uh, being the everyman voice that you are. What? Yeah, what? <laughs> Shit, what do you man. mean by that? Oh, you know, I, I think it's up to each one's interpretation. So, depending on where you come from, what your experiences are, it's all going to be different. It's all going to be, it's, it's a changing process in a sense, and it's different to everyone. It's like a beach ball. You know, you're all looking at it, it's like a huge beach ball. It could be green on one side and purple on the other. The other day, it's a beach ball. It's sleep paralysis. Most most of our topics are open to interpretation, like really right. open. Right. You know, because there's, there's so like he was saying, it's hard to do any kind of contained test with something like that because it's hard to force somebody into sleep paralysis. What do you think, Adam? <laughs> well, I mean... I think Luke knows what I think, but I mean, I pretty much would probably agree with Chris on what sleep paralysis is. Now, where I would uh, kind of differ somewhat is to say that uh, I think it's probably, um, as I mentioned before, a gateway to an altered state of consciousness, uh, which is something we've talked about with um, alien abduction, DMT, ayahuasca. You know, it's just another one of those forms of where you're accessing a different and another reality. Whether that reality is negative or positive, I don't know. There could be positive aspects. Which is why I like what you brought up about the 
Bobby, why I like you brought up about the the loved ones and the dead relatives. Yeah. Because that's something we talked about with uh, Chris Putnam, which you weren't there for that show, neither one of you guys were with the Supernatural Worldview, was he was talking about the not these um, experiences not necessarily being negative in nature. And Chris White kind of has a different viewpoint on that. Yeah. Um, interesting that he said that there's um, showing people that are like all messed up or the loved ones are all messed up in some kind of way. Um <clears throat> You know, Chris Putnam was saying that, that that's a proof that not all um, ghostly experiences are demonic, which is something that's big in like kind of the evangelical Christian realm. That, the that no matter what you're seeing, if you're seeing, you know, if you're seeing the demon coming to you in the middle of the night or the succubus coming in the middle of the night, but then Grandpa comes in and tells you where the buried treasure is, or you know how to cash what in on his insurance. Grandpa has the succubus in a collar. Well, you know, I, I don't know, Bobby. It's you know, one of your weird dreams, <laughs> I guess. Like, but uh, you're safe. Well, yeah, I, I've actually had um, the sleep uh, sleep paralysis experience that was neutral because it wasn't negative. Because like what I was seeing and still in the dream state, because uh, to me, you know, I was saying like it's more of a scientific process. I feel like I just got stuck in the dream state, yeah. and my and my body and my mind like weren't in the right place because I was too energetic and stuff to be dreaming in the first place, you know. But but what happened? What just felt like an intensity, like a like you're kind of like you're being shocked. <coughs> so you know, it, it wasn't necessarily a bad thing. I actually woke up and was like, "Whoa, that was cool," <laughs> you know. I've definitely had those moments where it's you you cannot wake up and like. I'm in a dream or I'm in a nightmare and all of a sudden I scream. Now, whether I'm screaming or not, whether I'm screaming in reality or I'm screaming in the dream, I don't know because, of course, I'm sleeping. And that usually is what wakes me up out of that. Mm -hmm. That's that's probably about the extent that I've had. You're reaching for your alarm clock and you wake up and you're already yeah. asleep. Now, two people that I know, <laughs> one person that used to be involved with this with, with this show, I have both had negative uh, sleep paralysis experiences. Yeah. So there's plenty. Of, there's you know a couple people. Like well, I said that my have other had ones those were negative. My other yeah. ones were negative. I think it depends on what's going on in your life at the time. I think it really depends on what's weighing heavily on your mind, what you're going through, um, what your subconscious is thinking, and you know I think a lot of things come out in dreams of whether or not they manifest to seem real and like things are happening you know it's just different you know the the question that i ask him about uh synthetics food chemicals uh which was a really good question by the way thank you uh but i'll <laughs> the juice work bobby stop laughing no dude i didn't say anything <laughs> i'm laughing at adam like just the way Adam He's just a funny guy. He's a, he's a funny guy. He's a good guy. You he's know? a funny guy. Yeah. You know? Adam's got a, a big hat on right now. You know? It's like a, it's a big funny hat. I don't know. But uh, anyway. Damn. I'm, I just totally lost it. Thanks. <laughs> Want to go ride bikes? You just uh, derailed Luke off the show. <laughs> I already have ADD, man. You know uh, it's hard to focus. Yeah. But anyway, uh, to finish up. Next week, we're going to do another show. We've got Nick Redford coming on, talking about close encounters of the fatal kind. Nick Redford is a guy that Luke does not remember. 
Uh-uh. But he'll remember him as soon as he gets in. He's the guy we talked about with, uh, we were talking about Jack Parsons. Oh, yeah, okay. And, uh, and you know, Marjorie Cameron and all that stuff, and L. Ron Hubbard, remember? Feel, I, hope, I hope he doesn't listen to this. You shot him now? Well, I mean, you know, he might. You never know. He's going to be like, that Luke guy's a douche. <laughs> <laughs> He'd probably say it more in his British accent. But uh, okay. That Luke guy's a douche. He's a douche. Actually, they, I don't think they use that word. They have a, like a cockney word for it. Dude with the metal song, if you're still listening, uh, I think... Yeah, Luke wanted me to apologize for not putting that on the show. Say you're sorry. <laughs> I'm, I'm sorry. <laughs> but guys, I want to thank you for being being here tonight and uh, helping out you. as usual. Yeah. yeah, thank you. And coming back <laughs> back to the to the to the new old studio. It's a long story, so I won't explain it. <laughs> <laughs> I want to thank everybody for uh, coming on and listening to Conspiracy.
Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line. Prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. Bet MGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus and present in Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1 800 Gambler in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Grainger.com, or just stop by. Granger, For the ones who get it done.